Welcome to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry, a collaborative podcast with Pass It On Network. Seniors deserve to have a fulfilling life with dignity and respect, but as we transition into our elderhood years, this doesn't always happen. Join us today as we discuss some of the most important issues that seniors face and provide much-needed answers to your questions. Now, here are Phyllis and Rubina. Welcome to Senior Straight Talk, where we present informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. I'm Phyllis Amon, your host. My co-host, Rubina Chaudhry, is off today. Our show, which began in September of 2019, was formerly known as Voices for Elder Care Advocacy. The library of all of our episodes can be found on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and can be downloaded on popular podcast platforms. Please remember to like, click, and share our episodes. You can hear the short news tidbits of interest to seniors, their families, and the general public on my YouTube channel at Phyllis Amon Associates. Please go to my YouTube channel to like, share, and subscribe to Senior News for today. I have two courses, which you can find on my website at www.phyllisamonassociates.com. For those listeners feeling stressed, stretched, and overwhelmed, Resilience Toolbox Secrets will help you recharge, reset, and recommit as you face life's challenges. Family members considering taking on the role of caregiver or those just beginning the caregiver journey can find valuable information in my latest course, A Caregiving Guide for Caregivers, The Basics. My latest book, Dignity and Respect, Are Our Aging Parents Getting What They Deserve, is available on Amazon, and I'm proud to say it became a number one new release one day after publication and is an international bestseller. It's available in both paperback and ebook formats. I hope you purchase a copy and encourage your friends and colleagues to do the same. I appreciate your support and hope you'll help spread the word on this all-important topic. Senior Straight Talk now is proud of the collaborative partnership with the Pass It On Network, a global peer learning network for positive aging advocates and a member of the United Nations Open-Ended Working Group on Aging. Seniors Straight Talk and Pass It On Network will continue bringing our listeners informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. And before we begin, I also want to thank Peter DeGear of DeGear Therapy Services, who is a colleague and consultant specializing in rehabilitation therapy services in nursing homes. So now I'd like to turn our attention to introduce today's guest, who is doing formidable work in advocacy and healthcare public policy. Alex Bardak is the Director of Public Policy and Advocacy for AMDA, the Society. Mr. Bardak works for the Society's extensive public policy agenda through advocacy in Congress and numerous federal agencies. A graduate from the University of Maryland, Baltimore County in political science and psychology and master's degree in public and legal policy, Mr. Bardak has extensive experience in health policy with a specific focus on areas such as payment models, and quality of care initiatives. He has been a recognized national speaker on healthcare policy and has spoken at national conferences throughout the country. Welcome, Alex, and thanks for taking the time to join me for a conversation on Seniors Straight Talk. It's great to have you here today and uh, have the listeners hear so much about the wonderful work that you're doing. 
I'm sure the listeners, as I was initially when I found out about AMDA, to, under, to know exactly what AMDA stands for and what the organization, what the organization does. Well, Phyllis, thank you so much. It's an honor to be here, and I'm glad that um, you're, you're doing this work, and congratulations on your book uh, and this podcast. I think uh, these topics are extraordinarily important, um, and I hope that we get uh, a lot of listeners because I think, as we'll talk throughout the hour, um, of how important all of this is. Uh, as far as uh, EMDA is concerned, so EMDA uh, is a 40-plus-year-old organization and it really started uh, back in the 80s uh, during the, the, the concerns around quality of care in nursing homes. might sound familiar today. <laughs> uh, but really, uh, you know, there was the Sentinel legislation that came out in 1987, the Nursing Home Reform Act, uh, that was part of the big omnibus budget bill in 1987, uh, which required uh, clinical oversight, medical leadership, it required medical directors to be present at each and every facility in the country. This is a statutory requirement. And at that point, EMDA really blossomed. It stood for the American Medical Directors Association, thus the, uh, the EMDA. And it uh, essentially brought together folks that believed that clinical leadership is one of the ways to improve quality uh, in nursing homes. Uh, and these were folks who were physicians uh, who really sought to to change the culture and change the dynamic uh, of nursing homes around the institutional medicine report that highlighted all of this. And that's how it began. Uh, since that point, um, it has codified a lot of the medical director requirements that you see today uh, that took some time to, to work through. Uh, and many of the nursing home regulations and requirements and what have you came out with the work of AMDA. Uh, over the years, we have developed a number of clinical practice guidelines and really serve as the leaders uh, in terms of clinical care in nursing facilities. Uh, several years ago, we recognized that the nature of nursing home work is changing. And in fact, we represented not only medical directors of facilities that were required legislatively, but all uh, clinicians that practice in this space. And we'll talk about that, nurse practitioners, attending physicians, and others uh, who touch uh, elders in nursing facilities. And so EMDA itself had expanded and therefore changed its name keeping its origin within EMDA, but then dash the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. The term post-acute mm -hmm. has become sort of the well-known uh, term that's out there uh, in long-term care. People recognize what that is. And so we renamed the organization, EMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, to now represent the more than 50,000 uh, clinicians that practice mm -hmm. in this space. Uh, this is not a small number anymore. Uh, actually, you said something, and just to clarify for our listeners, some people may not know what post-acute means. Mm -hmm. So do you want to just clarify that so people have a better understanding of what that is? Yeah, and, and I apologize. It, it's so easy to get lost in, in what we do every day that you don't recognize it. Yeah, it's true. People have no idea what post-acute or even perhaps long-term care is. Right, right. Uh, but post-acute care, as it's sort of been defined, is, is something that happens post an acute hospitalization, therefore the term post-acute. Normally, if you're hospitalized, you may uh, have some time in a nursing facility, but it also covers things like uh, assisted living facilities and home health. So it's a spectrum of care that's not considered to be sort of an acute episode of illness uh, that technically requires or typically requires a hospitalization. And I want to go further to clarify because some of the listeners, and I know myself as a clinician, as a speech pathologist, work in what they call subacute 
uh, units of nursing homes. A, a lot of, so what happens now, as you well know, and we could talk about this maybe briefly, because I know we have so much to talk about here, that when people move from the hospital situation, when they are in an acute level, at a serious level, and then they need less care, nursing homes, which are, uh, many of them have now carry the name skilled nursing facilities, have a unit that's dedicated to people. It's kind of like a step town, I call it. Right. Uh, they have a unit dedicated for people who don't, who no longer need the care in a hospital, but they still need some care. A lot of it is rehabilitation based, but they still need some care. And those units are also called short-term rehabilitation or subacute, just to clarify for people. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, th this whole field, and we'll talk about this, is the understanding of what this is today versus perhaps what even what it was in the, in the 80s or 90s is very different. I mean, we, we, we've heard that uh, nursing facilities, particularly the skilled portion, the skilled nursing facility, which is the post-acute short-term stay uh, patients, and we call them patients as opposed to residents that are more long-term, right? Right. Um, they are sort of, they, it's been termed that they are little hospitals. Uh, they're being run as little hospitals. And I think that dives into some of the other stuff we'll talk about is the level of training and the level um, of infrastructure that's necessary to do this. Uh, I think, you know, in general, uh, people do need to understand the differences of populations and what's the difference between a skilled nursing facility and a quote-unquote nursing facility or a subacute unit or a memory care unit and assisted living facility. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of these things are out there and I think they're extraordinarily confusing to people and they require sort of an understanding so that we can make policy that's tailored to what is actually going on. And my role has been, since I stepped out of that space as a therapist and taken on more of an advocacy and advisor role, is to help people understand the differences and what their loved one's needs are in all of these different areas, which would help them find the right setting for, for their loved one's care. Because when not understanding that, you're choosing based on really unknown. It's like buying a car and, and uh, you don't know, you, you just see all these different versions of it, uh, but you may have specific requirements and you don't know what the cars, the features are, but you just choose one. Yeah. And, and I think added to that is that many times, uh, in, in specifically, in, especially in terms of uh, post-acute care, you're not given a lot of time to decide this and you're doing this as one of the most stressful times. Let's say, you know, you have a, a parent at home who fell, unfortunately, broke her hip or whatever it may be that required a hospital, an acute hospitalization. Uh, you're not, you don't have a ton of time to make this decision. Uh, you know, you're given, hopefully there are social workers within a hospital trying to advise you of what to do, where to go and all of that. And you're trying to figure all of this out, as you mentioned, in a span of, hours uh, mm -hmm. and you're given tons of information you're given it by locality you're given all these and all this information when in reality this requires some thought and understanding of how all this works um, mm -hmm. and questions that you should be asking probably ahead of time and that you know it, it goes into there this, this um, area leads into so many different things that's why I think advanced care planning is such important so mm -hmm. you kind of start thinking about these things before a crisis and it's interesting we're talking about this during COVID times right how appropriate that we ought to start thinking about crises before they are crises uh, so that we are prepared. I, I tell people to plan by choice, not by crisis. Right. Being, uh, being informed is being for, forewarned, 
forewarned or being forearmed. Uh, plan when you don't need a plan. And people, I think, because very often we're talking about older adults, they don't want to think about that either in terms of themselves or they don't want to see their parents in that role or it's like something forbidden that let's not deal with it until later. Of course, that causes more problems, as you just said. But what I tell people is they do plan for these things. They just don't realize it. People carry car insurance. They're not planning on being in a car accident, mm -hmm. right? And I, I've been saying for a few years now, I bought burial insurance a couple of years ago, but I, I'm not really planning on being buried anytime soon. I mean, you never know what can happen, but I, I did plan for that eventuality. And there are many others. Listen, people, people uh, choose uh, to... Uh, uh, donate their organs on their driver's license, and they're not thinking about being in that situation. So I think there needs to be greater awareness that people really are making these plans. And if they can embrace that idea, maybe they'll start thinking about planning for these, these very difficult situations before they happen. So what has been some of the society's role in adv advocacy, especially recent successes? I know there have been some really recent successes and that's how you and I met, which is really over Twitter uh, about the, the most recent success, which as a therapist, I thought was fantastic. Yeah, well, you know, and I, I think again, I, I, I do want to stress that I think it's symptomatic of Again, what we just talked about, everything weaves in this, in this area. It's symptomatic of what occurred with the physician payment issue. And I say physician payment, it also, of course, impacts nurse practitioners uh, and others practicing in the setting. There are therapists, occupational, physical therapists. But in general terms, it's known as sort of the physician payment issue. Mm -hmm. That's how Medicare reimbursement works. It, they, they are reimbursed by uh, these codes that physicians bill and Therefore, they're just kind of moniker known as physician payment. When I say that, I don't mean that it's just payment to necessarily physicians. It could be their practice and all of that. Uh, but what had happened is um, in the latest annual update to Medicare payment rates, the CMS does this every, CMS being the Center for Medicare Medicaid Services, um, does that every year. And in this year, because there were some updates and very positive developments with increased payment to primary care services, only when they occur in the office, in the outpatient office space, because there were increases uh, to those codes, um, the way that Medicare payment works in the physician fee schedule is that it is a finite pool of money. And when one set of code, payment for one set of code goes up, something else has to balance that out. And therefore, <laughs> other services have to go down. And what had happened was nursing home services and assisted living and home health, I should add, were on that list. And unfortunately, the math worked out that they would receive an 8 to 10% payment, Medicare payment cut. Now, what people must understand is that primary care services in nursing facilities, again, are billed under very different codes than outpatient office codes, and they are already some of the lowest reimbursed. This isn't a, you know, some kind of like, woe is me type of thing, but the reality is that uh, we can talk about this, that it's very difficult to recruit qualified physicians and other clinicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, what have you, to practice in this space. And when you have such a disparity, the reality on the ground is, especially during the time of COVID, that there are going to be people that are going to be doing more office work and less nursing home work at a time when this is so critical. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. The other thing was that we were so concerned about is what message does this send? I have listened to so many stories, so many phone calls with our members that are 
been on the front lines as medical directors, as attending physicians, as nurse practitioners in nursing facilities, and they have done a truly a heroic effort. And the reward for that to be a 10% payment cut, just, it just made absolutely no sense. So we sent that message to Congress. We sent that message to uh, CMS and HHS more broadly. Uh, and I have to say, I am extraordinarily proud of the effort of all of our clinicians that are members of AMDA and even beyond that wrote their own stories to members of Congress, wrote to CMS, participated in meetings. I think it made a, an enormous difference that the voice of this uh, clinical leadership in nursing facilities that, that often gets ignored or, or whatever, it, whatever it is, it's, people don't listen to it. Uh, it, it really felt like it made a big difference. And so I'm extraordinarily proud of the fact that it's our members who, who made um, the difference, really. And, um, you know, I think our message resonated. Um, I think it's a stepping stone to much broader and bigger and better conversations than just, you know, the, this minutia of how these codes get developed and the process and all of that. But the cut um, was stopped by the bill that was actually just signed. Um, it was included in the uh, COVID relief package and end of the year spending package, which is confusing within itself. But um, there were there was some uh, effort to mitigate those cuts. We don't, I, I should say, we don't exactly know what the payment rate next year will be. So there could still be, even with everything we've done, a small cut. We just don't know what it is yet because the map hasn't been calculated as a result of the bill that was passed. But needless to say, I think we were heard um, and, and there is some definite relief. And, and hopefully in the future, we get beyond just fighting cuts and, and talk about what resources we need to actually serve this patient population. So as you talk about that in general terms, I, as a clinician, uh, a therapist, uh, not a physician, but I just want to bring that to light in, in what that would mean in, term, in terms of therapy services. Mm -hmm. So in terms of therapy services, there definitely would have been cuts to physical occupational and speech therapy right. services at a time when people are really needing more therapy, especially as they're de de debilitated from the effects of COVID. I mean, right. I've seen that firsthand. I'm sure all clinicians have seen that. So the effect, I mean, I know as a therapist, it, it could have played out in a couple of ways. Either there would be less therapy services available. So that's just, just what it is. Mm -hmm. So instead of somebody getting therapy five days a week, maybe they'd get it three days a week in more rural areas where there aren't a, the same number of therapists. Maybe they'd get it once a week, once every two weeks. Certainly, we all know that you can't improve if you don't get the, the support that you need, whether it's therapy. I liken it to medication sometimes. If the doctor said to you, gee, the pharmacy only has uh, 10 pills, so you, you can't take them every day. You have to take them every three days. Obviously, you wouldn't get the same level of improvement or response, I should say. Yeah, no, I, yes, the, the, the therapy, and you, know, and you haven't even mentioned the, the impact that the physician payment uh, model, the new uh, right. German payment model has had on therapy, right? I mean, that's for a change the dynamic as well. I mean, you could argue positive, negative. It's not probably for another uh, discussion, but it certainly had an impact uh, on, on therapy. And so, um, you know, you, you can't, you know, and, and many, very often we, we hear this from policymakers that the way to solve is increased oversight of other things. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's one. I mean, you, you, you can, you can ha oversee things as much as you can, but if you don't have the resources to do it, 
you know, I like, you know, if you're cleaning a house and, and you don't have anything to clean with, yeah, every time you're going to come in and do a survey of the house, it ain't going to look too good. <laughs> um, so, you know, and, and if you don't, and, and as a result of that, you just, you know, tell them that, well, your house is still doesn't look good. You're not improving. Well, again, where are the resources to help do right. that? This is so indicative of what, what I keep coming back to is that these are so symptomatic of the root cause problem of not understanding the workflow of this space not understanding of how we got here and what resources are needed to move mm. forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really, uh, you mentioned the other payment model, PDPM, which mm -hmm. that probably is a possibly a whole other discussion because it's a little involved and I don't want to just drop it out there and people say, what's PDPM? And, yeah, and sure. we don't really explain it because it is, it is rather involved. However, uh, there are two things about it that I actually appreciated as a speech therapist because speech therapy became uh, mm -hmm. very relevant and yeah. important. And uh, in previous times, uh, speech therapy really wasn't that important. Uh, to, I'm not saying it isn't important. I'm talking in terms of the payment model. Right. Uh, and I'm not saying that people didn't think it was important. I'm just talking about where it was in the payment model. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you, it was really based on hours of therapy rather than the, the needs, quote unquote, on the patient. Correct. Outcomes. It was based on volume and right. hours rather than outcomes. So from that point of view, I think it, it's more beneficial because it's based on outcome. But of course, there are many intricacies to that. Yeah, and I, you know, I can put a plug, you know, AMDA has written a lot on, on PDPM. Uh, we do have a, a publication also called Caring for the Ages, which is really not even geared toward with internally. I mean, in terms of AMDA membership, it's read by uh, the general, you know, public. so if people are uh, interested in learning more about PDPM, uh, there are plenty of resources out there in many from AMDA. And I think that would be important for people to look into if they are realizing that their loved one needs therapy or they've gotten right. certain messages about what's available in terms of therapy or why their loved one can or cannot get therapy. Well, I think it's important to understand the drivers right. of what drives the care. Um, you know, you, I think, as you said in the beginning, information is such power, right? And the, asking the right questions knowing what the right questions are and, and knowing why you're asking them, I think is so important. And there's, and in this area is complex, um, somewhat by design, but there are some very simple things you can do to simplify all of this and, you know, make sure you're making the right choices. Yeah, absolutely. I was struck by an article, two articles in the last uh, two days. One was from a nurse uh, who's, who's a geront gerontological, I guess, nurse. She specializes in that area, and she wrote an article about the difficulties in arranging for and making the decisions about the, the long-term care needs for her mother, and she comes from a space where she knows about this information. So that was one article. The other article I found was had to do with a patient in a hospital who had COVID and the hospital needed room for other patients and they wanted to transfer the person, but they wanted to transfer the person to a place that probably wouldn't have been ideal for their situation. And thankfully there was an advocate that helped this family fight against the hospital who really was trying to take it up all levels, even to a legal level to, to move this resident when it really 
wasn't in the resident's best interest. So like you say, and we, we've said in previous discussions, it's important not only to have the information, you, you have to know why you need that information. And if you can get somebody to help you in advocacy, then, then that's really a great thing. This article was terrific. I did repost it on Twitter because it really says a lot for this advocate and for the needs that we have in our healthcare system to really better treat and care for people who are either older or sick in some way. Mm-hmm. I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say that there's, obviously we all know there are failings in the system, but I think they become more glaring now because of COVID. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, this sort of becomes a much broader discussion about how we treat or how we have both in payment models and it's starting to change, thank goodness, although post-acute long-term care is, is, is excluded in many ways, but we have treated them as sort of these unique little islands, you know, hospital, mm-hmm. nursing home, assisted living, and on and on and on, and the, and office-based. And, and what, what has happened, I think, is unfortunately, because nursing homes, you know, have been dealt with, quote-unquote, separately. We, we have, I have started to say, a lot of times people say, well, it's such a unique setting. It's such a unique setting. You've probably heard this many times. I've heard it many times, for sure. And I've almost started saying, you know what? Are we doing ourselves a disservice by saying it is such a unique setting? Mm. Because when something is unique and is viewed as something that's out there and only a minority of people work there or practice there in terms of positions or others, well, then it gets treated sort of last. Like, mm. oh, we'll deal with it later. And I have seen time and again, example of this play out, not to the benefit of our healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Because as we have now started to integrate it, and I think it's symptomatic of, of what you're just talking about, because people don't, they go to the hospital, they know how to deal with that. And people in the hospital only know how to deal with that. Everything else are like, well, I need to call someone. I have no idea what's going on. And right. In fact, there are many hospitals that never stepped foot in the nursing facility. You couldn't right. the door and they've never been there. And, you know, I think value-based medicine, or sort of the integrated medical model now that we're dealing with, starting to sort of approaches in a very different way. But what has happened with is, is that because they're now responsible for the cost of the entire episode of care, for example, mm. they're all now going, well, what is going on across the street in that posting? Why am I, my accountable care organization is getting this bill? And, and my largest cost center is post-acute. What is post-acute care anyway? What the hell are they doing over there? <laughs> right. It's like... It's like this magical Narnia that they opened a closet and had no idea existed. It's been there all along. And in fact, what we find is that if you work together in an integrated system, post-acute care, because it has been neglected and treated as sort of, let's deal with it later. That's where the opportunity lies. Unfortunately, I think we still have that mindset that it's sort of Mm -hmm. this other thing. And we exclude them from these, to drive these value-based medicine, but they're still driven more by acute care and, and other things, whereas they should be the drivers behind all this. Mm. And I think it's so symptomatic. We need to stop talking about it this unique setting. No, it's part of healthcare. Mm-hmm. There are medically complex patients just there are in the hospital. They go from one building to another building. They still need care. And that's the bottom line. I think we need to be more inclusive rather than talk about how unique it is. You know, that's a very good point. And before we go to the break, I'm thinking that if just what you say, if we think of it all inclusive as a continuum of care, 
So it becomes part of the system rather than, like you say, that stuff over there, because I think for people in hospitals, and I'm not just talking about the article that I read, it's okay, let's discharge this person. Let's send them over there to that place. We're done. Thank you very much. That's the end of it. And Mm -hmm. that's not really how it can work to the, the benefit of everyone. But we're going to take a short break and return with this fantastic conversation with Alex Bardak about AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine and clinical services. I want to talk more about the clinical services, physician services and medical directors in nursing homes and, and what people really need to understand and know about that. So we'll be right back on Senior Straight Talk. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Phyllis Amon, owner of Phyllis Amon Associates, provides strategic solutions to families seeking care for their loved ones and coaches them to become more effective advocates. Her expertise comes from working in over 45 nursing homes. Phyllis, known for her passion, empathy, high-quality care standards, and quality life for older adults, is an experienced educator, speaker, and trainer. She's bridged the gap from healthcare to public and private sector businesses on topics from communication, caregiving, empathy, and novel approaches to team building and leadership. Rubina Chaudhry is president and founder of Mars Services, an engineering management consulting firm, as well as founder and president of all of Community Services, a 501c3 providing support services to seniors, families, and the community. Olive's Live, Learn, and Thrive programs engage seniors physically, mentally, and socially. Rubina's passion for seniors stems from her experiences as an only child, living miles away from her aging parents who are over 90 years of age. She understands the issues and decisions caregivers face. Visit olivecs.org for further information. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry. If you'd like to leave us a question or comment about our program, please feel free to email the hosts at phyllis at seniorstraighttalk.com. Now back to Senior Straight Talk. Welcome back to Senior Straight Talk, where I'm here with Alex Bardak, and we're having a phenomenally lively conversation about physician services, long-term care, reimbursement, uh, clinical services. And when we ended, I said that I wanted to come back and talk about clinical services, physician services, medical directors. What do these terms mean to people? Who are these people? What should people be asking? What What do people need to know? And why is it important to know about these people? So, Take it away, Alex. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, I, I, you know, I will say that back in 1987, let's take it back there, right, uh, that there was some wisdom in creating this position of medical director in a nursing facility. We, we certainly, you know, I wouldn't be uh, here talking about it if I didn't say that we view it as an important role, the medical director role. And yet it's probably, I don't know how many people, when they're placing their loved ones, ask what who, who the medical director of mm-hmm. the facility is. And yet anybody who ever asks me personally, I have told them, you know, go ask who the medical director is. And I tell you, unfortunately, not 
facilities don't all the time tell you. <laughs> but there are many more questions about medical directors can be, in, there are tons of research uh, on engaged medical direction and how much of a difference it can make. Uh, AMDA itself, um, there is a certifying body for medical directors called the Certified Medical Director Certification. Um, it is a way to ensure that they've gone through the training, understand the regulatory process, understand their uh, requirements, and are likely engaged with the facility. We also know that there are medical directors in name only, and there are even facilities without medical directors. Mm -hmm. They're searching or however they skirt around the uh, regulatory and legal requirement. So if you're a patient, I would certainly say, first of all, know that there is such a position in the, in the nursing facility, uh, a medical director, not everybody knows that. Number two, I would get to know who that person is. Mm -hmm. How are they involved? What is their training? Mm -hmm. I mean, we have, you know, you know my analogy on this and I'll go there. Uh, <laughs> and I know we'll come back to it. But, you know, when you, when you have a child and you go to a pediatrics office, you don't just say, oh, you don't go, well, is this a pediatrician or is this some other, you know, plastic surgeon, cardiologist, somebody who just retired and just wanted to see kids for the rest of their career or whatever? No, I, I think you would ask a little bit more than that. You'd ask, you know, are you certified? Have you, have you seen children? Have you done? And yet, when you place a loved one in the facility, you don't tend to ask, what's the training of the medical director? Who are they by profession? What's their background? Are they a geriatrician? Are they, who are they? And we've seen instances where you have people who've never set foot in a nursing facility, and yet somehow they become the medical director. Mm -hmm. um, same goes for attending physicians. Very rarely do people ask, you know, well, who are the attending physicians here? Maybe they call their, they're very uh, used to their community physician. What I would say about that, yeah, they may be the right person. They may not be the right person mm -hmm. because he or she has their training that could be good for you much like a pediatrician. If I'm 40, I probably don't go to a pediatrician. <laughs> I might have loved my pediatrician. They gave me the best candy in the world <laughs> for 15 years or however long that was. And yet when I'm 40, I realize, you know what, that's probably outside the scope. Same goes for, you know, family medicine or internal medicine doc. You have to understand that it might be out what is and isn't within their scope. So those are the questions I would be asking. Who's your medical director? What are the attending physicians? Are they are they here frequently? You know, what is going on with sort of the clinical leadership of your facility? I think very rarely do people focus on that. And that that's always the boggle. So I have two questions based on, uh, for the listeners, really, based mm -hmm. on what you just said. Are all medical directors geriatricians? And we could talk about what a geriatrician is briefly. Right. And for people to understand that the attending physician in the nursing home is the person that is going to see their loved one, that the, their, their doctor in the community who doesn't have privileges in that facility is not able to see that, uh, to go to that building to provide care. However, very often doctors or attending physicians, in my experience, sometimes they are very sensitive to that and they'll be in touch with the person's uh, community doctor, which is a great thing. Not everybody takes the time for that, but but it is great when, when people do. But are all medical directors geriatricians? And let's just talk briefly about what geriatrician training involves and how that's different from a regular doctor, because an internist can become a medical director and uh, that's a very different field than being a geriatrician. Yeah. Well, first of all, to your first question, are all medical directors geriatricians? No, right. uh, they are not. The, the one thing I'll say is we don't know. Uh, part of the issue is that there isn't a lot, a whole lot of information out there if you wanted to find medical directors of facilities. Good mm -hmm. luck. You, I mean, 
you have to call a facility and really be active about it. One of the, one of the advocacy positions from AMDA has been to create a national registry of medical directors for mm. that very reason, because very few consumers actually realize that this is a position of importance. Uh, they sort of, and, and what we hear a lot is like, well, you know, yeah, they have a medical director, but they're never there all the time and all that. Well, isn't that symptomatic of the fact that you don't know who they are and aren't and asking any questions and aren't holding them accountable? Right. You know, it's like the Yogi Bear. Nobody goes there. It's too crowded. Right. If you're not asking the questions. There's no accountability for it. And so I would say, look, I think if we provide more transparency and all of that, I think we would we would ask that. So, no, absolutely not. We have seen Office of Inspector General reports that are referral schemes. And they, they are as far from geriatrician as can be. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, but those are the questions you should be asking. As far as what's so unique about why, why they perhaps should be a geriatrician or even certified, I would argue, certified medical director, um, or at least receive the training, is because, you know, I talked about this unique thing. Well, the, the unique part of, of nursing homes comes from the fact that it is differently regulated. The patients in nursing homes uh, we talk about de-prescribing a lot. When you go to the hospital, it's, you know, what meds you put on to stabilize, make sure, you know, you're stabilizing and ready to go home. That is not the goal of a nursing facility. Right. In fact, they try to de-prescribe. They try to do behavioral intervention. They try to hold, you know, as you talk about thera- different therapies, they try, it's a very different level. Uh, the, the reimbursement structure is very different. If you start ordering a bunch of lab tests and all that, you're, you're going to blow your per diem reimbursement right out of the water. And you're not going to have, the same uh, resources that you would have in other settings. The pharmacy works very different. People don't know. There are no on-site pharmacies. They get delivered. They get delivered. Right. There are so many of those things that are, that are different in nursing facilities. By the way, the pharmacy issue, again, playing out within COVID-19. Right. Um, so uh, those are some of the things um, that I would say. But the other thing about attending physicians, um, it's hard to tell what, you know, I, I always, I, I've been talking about this. I, I asked sort of people have asked, what is the, sh- is there a shortage of attending physicians in nursing facilities? I don't know the answer to that. We know anecdotally that both medical directors and attending physicians, there, there is a shortage of people who are working in this field in medical, in nursing homes. What it is, I don't know why, because we don't dive in that deep. We only look at, well, how many primary care doctors are out there? We don't look at, uh, well, how many of them are practicing in the setting and how many do we need <laughs> and how many are trained to do this? Because there, there isn't that granular information out there. We just hear that, particularly with that reimbursement issue we talked about earlier, I'm going to have a hard time recruiting anybody to work in this field. And that goes for physicians and nurse practitioners. But we, I at least have not seen any scientific study or anything that has defined the shortage of trained clinicians in this field whether it be even medical directors or attending physicians. What do you think of, this just came to mind as you're speaking, what do you think of, or is there an initiative towards this, or is it feasible or possible for uh, attending physicians, nurse practitioners, and medical directors to all have some kind of training in gerontology, either geriatric medicine or gerontology, because it is a very different discipline when you're dealing with somebody who's older with different conditions, different levels of comorbidities, comorbidities meaning different conditions that that one person has that mm-hmm. may interact with each other and you're you know, prescribing medications to address all of these issues and what are the interactions of those medications for those conditions. For an older person, it might be different than for a, a person of a different age that's younger. 
Are there any thoughts or initiatives around that? Because as we're thinking, I'm, and knowing the number of physicians that I've worked with through the years, obviously, just like in any profession, some are better than others. Uh, mm-hmm. that's, that goes without saying. Right. Right. But I would think that there should be some level of base training, just like as a speech pathologist, I have to have a certain level of uh, competency and training in order to work in a nursing home. Is there anything like that for physicians? And, and shouldn't there be? Or nurse wow, pathologists? that's a fantastic question. And you're actually, you know, you, you've actually set up uh, something that AMDA's worked on uh, because we recognize this. We actually developed, uh, our, our, we, uh, our clinicians uh, developed a core curriculum uh, on this very topic for attending physicians and for medical direction. In fact, our training for medical directions is actually called the core curriculum for medical directions for medical directors in nursing homes. It, we we uh, certified many, and that's what it's called for that reason. Well, we have done a very similar type thing for uh, attending physicians and clinicians um, in nursing facilities. So we do have a, uh, a program. Now, it is, you know, it's something we developed. Uh, I, I should give a nod to other organizations that are working on this, uh, like the Gerontological Advanced Practice Nurses Association, GAPNA, the American Geriatric Society, who has uh, worked a lot on workforce issues, um, and we worked right alongside with them to infuse geriatrics into the very into different programs. Uh, they've done so, I think, with emergency medicine departments and, and other areas. But, you know, and one of our past presidents, Dr. Nishir Pandya, when she was president of AMDA, sort of had an initiative to geriatricize medicine, right? Mm -hmm. There are, uh, geriatrics is not uh, unique, again, that were two nursing homes. Patients that are in their 90s end up in the hospital. They end up in in wherever they may be. Uh, You know, my wife, I should say, also works at Maryland Shop Trauma at at one of the leading trauma hospitals in the country. And I always ask her, do you treat, you know, 90-year-olds different from, and there really isn't much there. They don't get a lot of training. Mm -hmm. That's part of the problem. They have a geriatrician for an entire hospital. Um, so I think it's, again, a, sim- a symptom of the issue that we don't uh, understand what the differences are and how the workflow and what the uh, practice pattern, the clinical need for these types of patients are. And again, I go back to advanced care planning from the consumer side. What are your goals of care? Because they may mm-hmm. be very different. I think it's so important to do advanced care planning because you can drive the care they receive. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when I was doing research for my book, I found a program, I think it's at Princeton. I, you know, I don't want to misspeak because I actually don't remember off the top of my head, but it's a wonderful program for residents where they are paired with uh, people in the community that are, con- that are their mentors these are people of advanced ages. And the, the reason they developed this program was kind of just what you said. The only interaction that these residents had with older adults was when they saw them in a hospital bed with a hospital gown and a broken hip, possibly, or, or whatever other situation they were in. And uh, they really didn't understand who these people were or what their lives were like and what they were returning to or how could they make recommendations if they knew nothing about what an older person's life was like. So they developed this program, it's a phenomenal program, where they pair residents with a mentor in the community. I believe it's somebody, it could be somebody in their 70s or 80s or above, I suppose. They have to visit them on three different occasions in their home. They have questionnaires they have to fill out. And what they found is that these residents were 
were thrilled that they had the opportunity to, to understand what people's lives were like, whether it's in terms of mobility, right. taking medication, and they developed a whole new understanding and respect for who this person was that they would see in the hospital bed. So right. that goes to, speaks to the whole area of geriatric medicine and gerontology, having people have that understanding of what that, what that experience is like. Because obviously when I was 40, I couldn't relate to somebody's experience who were 60 and I'm in my 60s, I can't relate to someone experience in their 80s. Right. Well, I, it speaks, I think that is, again, going back to this unique nature, one of the, our quote, unquote, recruitment tools for people to practice in, the air, in this area. And we know that people who practice really care about it, and, and they're not in it for the glory, they're, they're in it for the people that they work with. I am so inspired by, the mem- by every single person I've ever talked to who has been in facilities, and, and somebody who wrote a foreword for your book. Uh, music and memory. I think it's it's so indicative of what people try to do in these facilities. But it's not just about. And I think this is important because we talked a lot about sort of the clinical care, the clinical care. But it, it, it's 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 truly the art of medicine that's talked about so much in in this setting because it's how do we figure out who these people are and tailor the care to them. It's about how many medications they're on. It's about sort of living with dignity, right, and that quality of life and and. If with resources, you do have innovations like music and memory that have been fantastic, right? Mm-hmm. They dig into who these people are and bring back memories for dementia patients who their sons and daughters didn't ever know about, right? And so um, there is this sense that uh, people who practice in this setting have a very different mindset. Uh, it's not just a clinical mindset. It's, it's how do we take care of the person for their goals and their needs? and remind their families that their family is comfortable with who they are and all of that. And, and so I think both sides are important. Uh, yeah, just to uh, clarify something, we have had, by the way, Dan Cohn, the, fou- the founder of Music and Memory, on the show a while back. Uh, Dan and I are actually also uh, – working on a course together. Yeah, I apologize, same forward, <laughs> wrote a testimony. That's, that's okay, <laughs> about uh, music and memory and communication. We're actually endeavoring to write a course on that for people. So I just want to clarify because Dr. Bill Thomas wrote the foreword right. for my book. Right. And uh, every time I say his name and the fact that he wrote the foreword, I'm so grateful and honored, actually. I just have a smile on my face every time I even say it. And I just want to say that, that it, the foreword is just, it's, it's worth reading because he's, he's a brilliant writer and a brilliant thinker. And um, I think it, 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 talking about person-centered care, which is one of his favorite chapters of the book, because that's kind of his baby, which is, and we could talk about that just briefly, that it's about the person. It's not patient-centered care, because when you say patient-centered, you're already objectifying the person. It's about person-centered care. It's about understanding that person. And that actually goes back to what I said about geriatrics or gerontology. You have to understand who that person is as an older adult, not only who the person is as a person, but who their, what their experience is and what their physical experience is as an older adult. Yeah, and you know, this has been, I, I have to say this because I think, uh, and we haven't touched a lot on COVID, but I think during times of COVID, I think what's distraught me a little bit is that there is so much talk about numbers. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's about 2% or 10% or whatever the percentage is. And people say, uh, you know, they just say 
the, it's always a number. And even person-centered care, I think it's, it's a much better term. I totally agree with that. But we, we also have to humanize a lot of this, mm-hmm. right? These are, we talked about this, I mean, these are veterans. Uh, you talk about people in their 90s. Uh, these are people who grew up through world wars. These are people who cared for us and, mm. in my case, for my parents. You know, so, you know, we have to be not even just talking about numbers. We have to really talk about these are our caregivers, right? right. Extraordinarily difficult times in many instances. And it just so happens that now uh, these people require help. I mean, you need help. And in some instances, in the case of music and memory, even remembering who they were right. Right? and, uh, you know, the heroics that they went through and that we may not even know. And um, so, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like humanizing this is, is, I think, extraordinarily important. And it's important to understand, again, why, what goes on in nursing homes, because you have, you truly do have a population that's rehab and maybe those are more patient, quote unquote, because mm-hmm. they they were in the hospital there. They may be in the nursing facility. The average length of stay in a nursing facility is less than two weeks. Right. And so that, you know, in that case, yeah, maybe it is a patient. You don't establish that sort of relationship. But for the long stay patients, which happen, they may be in beds next to each other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're a very different story, right? That's where we talk about a lot about quality of life and, and the different goals of care and what do we want to see and how do we mix their clinical need versus their quality of life in, in advanced care. Again, the term advanced care planning and, you know, hospice care potentially. I mean, all of those things. And, and really, uh, you know, a lot of it's been written about living with dignity. So I think we have to sort of, again, understand this setting in order to understand how to personalize what we're doing there. And, mm. and policymakers, I think, don't really know all these differences. And I think that's why we see these broad brush Mm-hmm. policies, both from a reimbursement scheme, from a, from a, um, a value-based medicine or these payment model scheme, we see this all the time, that they don't distinguish, for example, between that 14-day stay and a long stay, you know, mm-hmm. but, it, but it's very different. There's something that you just said, and I know we talked about it when we had our conversation before this podcast, which is living with dignity, because that's one of my, uh, one of the things I always say that, uh, that you're living with dignity until you're not living anymore, as opposed to dying with dignity. I come from, and I've, I've told you, and I've told many people, my specialty was working with people who are ventilator dependent and who have trach tubes to help them breathe. So I have a very concrete view of it. Either you're breathing and you're alive, you're not breathing and you're not. So to me, it's like you're living with dignity until, until you're not, I prefer, I just prefer that terminology. So I'm glad to hear that you, that you. Yeah. I I mean, yeah, I don't know that I even purposefully. No, uh, but it was great. I I loved it. (laughs) But no, I mean, truly though, when, when, and I think it goes to something we talked about even in the very beginning is what is the image quote unquote in people's minds about what these places are. Right. One of the things that, that was you were talking about, um, you know, people that want to end up there and, and they don't want to talk about these things, the burial plots, things like that. I can tell you that there are very real, and that's part of the other part of the training here that we talked about before, is the cultural differences. Um, I can tell you, you know, I am from uh, Eastern European. I, I come from, you know, I'm an immigrant myself, first generation. Um, and having actually experienced some of this, I can tell you, we don't talk about dying. Uh, right. At least in my family, you know, whatever. Uh, when my grandfather, just a quick personal story, my grandfather was dying. Uh, I remember going to see him and I was a teenager at that point. And 
it wasn't customary to say goodbye. Like, you, you know, right. you, you'd say, I'll see you next week. I mean, it's, right. it's a little wild to think about now, but the, there are cultural differences. Uh, and to those in, from Eastern Europe listening to this will we'll understand it completely. Uh, unheard of to, to buy burial plots, for example, ahead of time. Right. Um, you know, so there, the, those sorts of things, there, you know, I, you know, I, I haven't gone through a clinical, I didn't go to med school, but I, I, I've taken a class, you know, during my um, master's uh, program, they did have classes together, actually, about bioethics and some other things with, with folks that were going into medicine. And this is very rarely sort of talked about. You know, how do you right. deal with these issues? They, they know the clinical part. You know, how do you do this and that? Or, but these sorts of issues are very different. And they are almost as important as anything else in a nursing facility. Mm-hmm. It is different from what you're used to, perhaps, uh, coming out of medical school. I, I have to say, my first experience <clears throat> uh, with ethics um, uh, and saying anything about dying was uh, many years ago, I was working in a nursing home <clears throat> situation that had a vent unit. And uh, we did, uh, there was a, a medical director. No, he was the pulmonologist for the vent unit. He was a medical director and actually a head of pulmonology at a, a well-known hospital in the area. And we did rounds, uh, grand rounds every week. It was fantastic. We did it for two and a half years. So that's you know, the basis of my training in that, in that area. And I'll never forget one day uh, there was a gentleman who uh, had a, he was on a vent, I think, or he had a trach and the daughter was there and we were in rounds and they wanted to, uh, the, the gentleman wanted it removed and uh, the doctor was saying no. And so the daughter asked point blank, well, what would happen if they took out the trach? Because the father was very insistent that, this is what he wanted. Mm. And it was the first time, first time that we ever heard a doctor address the issue of death. Mm. And when, and he's, I mean, he said it in a, in a very humane way. It wasn't, you know, it, I mean, he tried to say it as gently as he could, but he, it was still a reality. And as staff people standing there, we were, we were aghast. We didn't even know what to make of it because it's like you say, it's very often not talked about as a taboo subject. Some doctors don't even want to approach the, the topic with, uh, with family members or with a resident in, in nursing homes. It was the first time we ever heard it. And like I said, he did it in a very dignified way, but it was a reality of a situation. And, you know, we had that. And he actually said to the daughter, uh, let's have this discussion outside. And she said, no, my father, this is his life. And let's have this discussion right here. And we all stood there and had the conversation. And it was a tremendously valuable experience. Yeah, no, I I could tell you that, you know, from the background that I come from, that would be very uh, (laughs) unlikely. (laughs) But but again, I mean, it's, uh, but understanding that, I think talking perhaps it changes. I mean, it doesn't, just because it it had been that way, doesn't mean it, uh, it will be that way. So, um, you know, that's that's part of the issue. I think it's part of the reason why you ought to know who the medical director is, because part of their responsibility through regulatory, I mean, it's codified that they are responsible for a lot of the operational operation of the facility and the clinical. And and they are supposed to be participating in family meetings like like the one you're supposed to be experienced in these things and develop these relationships, which is why I believe, you know, experienced, dedicated medical directors make a difference because they could uh, make a difference in the, even in a conversation like this um, right. that could make a difference whether somebody's rehospitalized or 
you know, um, in their last days or whatever. We see that so often that they, they, they bounce around the system in their last week or so of life. And that's perhaps shouldn't be that way. And it should be talked about. And again, I agree. My big role there. I agree. I, we only have a couple of minutes. We really haven't gotten to the topic of ageism, but I think all of this encompasses that, how we're caring and treating older adults, being concerned about all the issues that are concerning for them, their life, whether they're living in the community and assisted living in, in a nursing home situation. And uh, we touched on it briefly during the break, and I know we touched on it before. Maybe this is another conversation. I'd love to have you back to continue it if you had the time and were willing about maybe there needs to be different levels of, of nursing home situations so that those people that require the, you know, a, a greater level of care, a more skilled level of care is not the same place as somebody who doesn't need all of that. Mm-hmm. And maybe those are different levels. I don't even know if that's something that's possible at this point, consi- considering how the system has developed. But I don't know, maybe it's something. I think you have to look at financial drivers, right? I mean, we know that uh, Medicaid rate, I mean, it gets complicated very quickly. Medicaid rates, for, which reimburse majority of long-term care, just aren't there, right? And right. State budgets the way they are. What happens in the federal government has been up and down. Uh, so the facilities aren't quote unquote making I mean, to go back to the ethics of, of the, this being a business in the first place. But you know they don't make a ton of money quote unquote on on the long term patients. So they have to make that up on their post acute uh, where they could make uh, money. You know, this is on the facility side. And so you know I think it would be difficult from you really have to look at. Um, the financial structure of everything as well. But I would say that, again, the fact that we're looking, the fact that we would be looking at it in the first place is is a win because COVID has shown us this, that we have ignored this place for so many years, although there's been legislation, although this has been a highly regulated field, by and large, as you talk about ages and people have dismissed it, that's something you don't go, that's something you don't, and yet nursing homes are, are necessary. They're, whether we call them nursing homes or not, there's going to be people who require um, assistance with their daily living. But dementia is, is, is not a disease that is easily uh, curable, as we've seen, or Alzheimer's. And um, so we're going to need this. And how we structure this, I think, is a conversation that we need to have. But the fact that we're having it, I think, is illustrative of, of, of the fact that, that our voice starting to matter. And I think COVID, one of the things, you know, COVID is terrible, particularly in nursing facilities. And people talk about these long stay patients. We have had members that have known their families for years and they're dying overnight. Mm -hmm. Absolutely terrible thing. But one of the things that it has done is that it highlighted that we need to talk about this space and we need to prioritize about this space and we need to humanize this space. Again, these are veterans. These are our loved ones, these are caregivers, these are not just numbers that right. so often present. I mean, one of the things that social media, uh, and I recognize social media for what it is, and, uh, but, you know, the people that just say, oh, it's just the, it's just the elderly and yeah, I know, quarantine right? them. Well, okay, so they can sit in a prison cell for, you know, while we go out partying. I mean, right. I don't know how I feel about that. I know. Uh, and uh, I have to tell you, I it, another aspect of it that I don't think people think about is, They've given birth to us. I right. mean, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. So, hello. <laughs> That's why I harp back to pediatrics, right? right. They, took, they took me to somebody who knew how to care for me at right. the time. Why am I taking them for somebody that, that well, they don't know whether they can care right, for Right, right. You know, they rely on, you know, we don't, talk, but we, they rely on other things, like the hospital or whatever. But right. they, don't, they don't take the same, I mean, 
because we know that children are our most precious. At, you know, I have two young children, so that, that would kind of gives me sort of the idea there. But I would, you would do anything to find out to make sure that this person is knows what to do. You probably talk to your mom or father's groups, parent groups. You talk to your cat, your dog, and just <laughs> make sure that you know this is an office that you're going to be comfortable. And if right. you're not, you're going to switch faster than anything. And yet, when you put your loved one. You're not asking the right questions. You're you're sort of put them there and hope for the best, right? And, and I don't think that's the right approach. So there's something that I I want to say about a, a word that you just used, which I really am advocating for changing that word, uh, which is put somebody someplace yeah, because yeah. it dehumanizes them. It takes away them them as an as an independent person. Mm-hmm. People are still people, and it really is dehumanizing. We have so many transitions in our lives. Right. We move from place to place to place to place, but somehow when we get to an older age and we need some kind of help, we say that somebody puts us someplace and that also makes it very much. It's those people over there. They're put there for their end of the journey. Nobody has to think about them because they don't even have the, uh, they, they aren't even involved in the decision-making process. I mean, in some place, in some instances, maybe yes, but in large part, no. And they're just put there and people do feel that they're put there. Yeah, and 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 for those people who don't have family members, and I'm sure there are listeners who have been in this situation either as a as on the inside as a clinician or know somebody. uh, I've seen many times people come from the hospital and they, you know, if they don't have family members, they're just sent to this place. People don't know where they are, who these people are that they're they're going to be. interacting with or who are going to be responsible for their care. It's, it's a, it's a horrible situation, but uh, I think that we have to have you back, Alex, because this has just been fantastic. Yeah, well, and, 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 and what you just said, it's, it, it's so indicative of how our lexicon around this issue is ingrained. I didn't think about it, but you were right. absolutely right. I mean, put somewhere is like, you know, I, all of a sudden, for whatever reason, go to an orphanage. Like, right. it's like right. you've been deserted. I mean, you know, right. fortunately it's like, right you get put there. I mean, you get assigned or whatever. Um, yeah, you're right. That it's, it, you shouldn't use that term. It's really, it's, it's your place. Yeah. Right. So listen, before we go, can you tell people how they could find out more information about this, about AMDA, get in touch with you if need be, if that's a possibility? Yeah, of course. Uh, so uh, AMDA is pretty easy to find. Uh, it's www.ealtc.org. That is our website from there. Uh, we have many resources. As I mentioned, we have publications like Caring for the Ages. We have a journal, um, Journal of the American Medical Directors Association, JAMDA uh, for short. Uh, we put out a policy newsletter every week. Uh, you can email me. Uh, it's just the first letter in my last name at paltc.org. Uh, so it's A-B-A-R-D-A-K-H at paltc.org. I am happy to listen to your stories. Uh, we have people contact us and listen. In the advocacy world, uh, my role is only as good as the stories that I hear from the field uh, and what's going on on the ground. I, I honestly would not, you know, have a job to to advocate if if we didn't have the people that are working and are dedicated to this. And so, um, I love to hear from people. Well, that's terrific. So thanks, Alex, so much for generously sharing your time today on Senior Straight Talk for the enlightening conversation, the tremendously valuable work you do and you do on behalf of AMDA and the valuable information that I know our listeners got today. So I'll have to 
end today, but please join us on our next episode of Senior Straight Talk for more informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. Please remember to like, click, and share our episodes. So until next time, stay safe, stay well, and stay tuned. Thank you for listening to Senior Straight Talk. Join your hosts, Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry again soon for another episode on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or your favorite podcast platforms.